You're dangerous. You're a junkie. I bet you're high right now. Hello, welcome to the Dr. Junkie Show. I'm your host, Ben Boyce, and today's mini episode is about the name of this podcast, The Dr. Junkie Show. It's what I'm asked about most often, and it's even cost me a few interviews when people misunderstood it as casual banter or as a joke. It's not. First, I want to admit the obvious, that the name Dr. Junkie Show is clickbait. It makes people think, what the hell is this guy all about, right? One of Audre Lorde's most famous quotes will come up repeatedly today. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they'll never enable us to bring about genuine change. Audrey was unpacking the way that the personal is always political. That the choices we make daily influence larger systems of power, like it or not. In particular, she's reminding us that calling people the same names they keep calling us won't work. Winning the majority in a government body and passing laws that undo the laws of the last administration won't work. Fighting fire with fire, insult with insult, yes you dids with no I didn't you dids won't work. Domination won't undo domination. But it will get people's attention. Let's be real. We live in a spectacle-driven society. Dr. Junkie sounds fun. But if you tuned in because you thought I was going to roll around in the stereotype muck of the word junkie, Sorry, wrong show. But stick around anyway. You might learn something fun. Our friendly neighborhood feminist scholars are quick to remind us that language is designed to reinforce taken-for-granted oppressive practices. That language is literally built and shaped in an effort to maintain systems of power. That's a mouthful, but it's simpler than you might think. The problem is that we need language to talk about it. And language is a tool of the master. Cue Audre Lorde. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. If language is indeed designed to maintain the upper hand of those in power, and it is, then one of its most important features would be silence. We don't have the words or figures of speech to discuss the process that we use to make sense of the world all day every day. The first rule of Fight Club, say it with me, never talk about Fight Club. We make sense of our world by referring to stories we've heard, events we've witnessed, or narratives of success or failure that describe spaces where we haven't been, where we aren't familiar. Watch, I'll show you. Imagine a prison or a jail. Imagine the inmates and the guards, the cells and the noise, the dank smells and the dreary feeling. You probably just envisioned one of two spaces. If you've been to jail, you probably conjured up the memory of that space. And more likely, whether you've been to jail or not, you probably thought about the films and television shows you've seen throughout your life, the spectacles of crime and punishment that fill the spaces between our personal knowledge. Television is designed to pack it all into a small box, so to speak, and that's the reason why even those of us who have been to prison ourselves often use well-known film scenes to describe the experience to others. We consume those same narratives, and we find them just as helpful for making sense of what happened to us, or for sharing those stories with other people. Travis Dixon has a great article called Teaching You to Love Fear, where he presents the research to back this up, so check it out if you're curious. Want to try one more? Think about poverty. Imagine what that looks like. Got it? Are you imagining a character from Shameless, or Roseanne, or The Connors? Or are you remembering things from your own life? Your own experiences or the places that you've walked past where homeless people were living? 
Humans make sense of our world with stories, and if we only have access to one specific story, one culturally dominant narrative, then we won't be able to imagine anything else when someone asks us to envision homelessness or addiction or criminality. We're effectively boxed in by the culture of hypermedia in which we currently live. It programs us in unavoidable ways, most of which we don't even notice until someone asks us to envision a prison or to think about poverty. One step further, and you should understand the name of this show. In Western cultures, hell, throughout the world at this point, there's a story told about addiction that is so predictable it hurts. The story, whether it's train spotting or basketball diaries or less than zero or gridlocked or the story you're thinking about right now, the story is always the same. The new user picks up drugs because they have a bad day or a bad week. Their friends watch as things rapidly fall apart because the one-time user can't stop using. Because, as we've all been told for our whole lives, drugs are immediately addictive. A tough love style intervention fails, leading to the inevitable rock bottom, jail, physical illness, or death. And that's it. Stop using or die. Our dominant cultural narrative has no space for stories about successful drug use, so we don't know how to imagine successful drug users. When someone asks us to envision a person who injects heroin, we don't have a choice but to conjure up dead bodies and down and outs. That's all we have to choose from. There are no other stories in our ever-expanding library of cultural narratives. Language puts us in our place. It's a tool of those in power. Think about all the labels that have been applied to you throughout your life, some without your permission and others because you asked for them or you earned them. Think about how they've been used to keep you in your place, emotionally, physically, or religiously. Think about how they've been used to allow you access to otherwise restricted areas. It's not just the mean names, but the normal everyday names. Wife, waiter, flight attendant, custodian, professor, doctor. They all come with a required performance. These labels have responsibilities, and if one of the labeled refuses to perform, refuses to be put into their place when that label is deployed, well then that label will be stripped and a new, updated label will be applied. I mean, if my waiter refuses to serve me to perform their duty, he probably won't be a waiter for very long. Criminal, loser, lazy, unemployed, these terms also keep people in their place. And they work wonderfully to do so, especially when they're terms that we can't squirm out from beneath. They act as barriers to movement, and they frame the messages shared by those to whom they are applied. We hear a middle-aged doctor differently than a young child who says the exact same thing. It's the silent conversations we have in our heads. An addicted person won't tell the truth anyway, so why bother listening? A criminal can't teach me a moral lesson, so why let him try? A non-Christian couldn't possibly tell me anything about spirituality, so why should I listen? And as we all know, it gets much more obvious when we talk about the nasty labels that keep us all in our place. Convict, junkie, dipshit, loser, worthless, lazy, bum. These are the broadswords of Western English. They do the heavy lifting. They tell us where we can and can't go, where we are and are not welcome. And they burn deep into our spirits when we realize we can't escape them. We internalize those labels and perform our roles because what choice do we have? The dominant cultural narrative has taught us just like it's taught you. But when those of us who have had language strategically deployed against us manage to snatch those words and phrases back, we upset the status quo and steal just a little bit of that magic oppression contained in those terms. There's a great video floating around the internet where Ta-Nehisi Coates is doing a Q&A and a white girl asks him how to correct her friends when they use racial slurs. 
On a side note, white folks, please stop asking every black person you bump into to explain the system your grandparents designed. We're capable of doing this work ourselves, and it's our responsibility as the beneficiaries of white supremacy to figure out how the system works and how to dismantle it. And we are the beneficiaries, no matter when you think that system ended, or if, like me, you don't think it ever actually did. Anyway, Ta-Nehisi provides this great hypothetical example where he walks into his living room and his wife is hanging out with her friends. In his example, they're joking around and calling each other bitch, and he explains that, as a man, he wouldn't feel tempted to join in and call them bitches because those words would mean something different coming from him than from each other. In those moments, the word bitch is being reappropriated by those against whom it has been traditionally deployed. And even if he wanted to, as a man, Tanahisi couldn't participate in that process because that word doesn't work the same way on men as it does on women. It still works. Them's fighting words, according to the standards of toxic masculinity common in our culture. But you can think of other terms that have been deployed against you or against other groups who have at times taken them up and redefined them, reappropriated them, often to the chagrin of the group that originally used the same term as a weapon. A couple of years ago, I was drawn into a public debate with one of my old church friends. I was raised in a church that could have been on any corner in any city in the United States. We were taught that friendly, Michigan nice sort of racism, sexism, and homophobia that used to play so well, but is increasingly called out in our current PC wave of cultural growth. And that calling out is uncomfortable. We feel like bad people when someone points out how our actions hurt others. So we do the U.S. thing and we deny. We push back. We insist that the offense is fabricated, that the language we're using is not problematic, and most importantly, we make it crystal clear that we aren't willing to do the slight work of updating our vocabulary, the same work that every generation since the beginning of language has been forced to do. In this case, it was homophobia and racism. I was trying to explain some of the things I had only recently learned myself about oppression and white supremacy. I was actually telling him some of the same things I'm saying here, that our language informs our attitudes, that our attitudes in turn inform our behavior. Pretty simple stuff. His response was fabulously unexpected, although I probably should have seen it coming. He said, take moral advice from a junkie, that'll be the day. It's a familiar burn, that reminder that social exclusion will be your permanent lot in life. As an addicted person, and as a convicted criminal, and as a thief, I was already used to the shame that society expects me to carry around on my shoulders. I'm supposed to be prepared to drop to my knees and beg forgiveness on demand, to confess my sins and compile a list of reasons why I deserve a second chance, to prove I'm safe and responsible despite my scarlet letter of felony conviction. And this requirement has no expiration date. If I attempt to get a job in 30 years, I'll still have to explain why I can be trusted despite my past convictions. That's because, to borrow Patricia Hill Collins' words, domination always involves attempts to objectify the subordinate group. Collins, one of my favorite feminist scholars, goes on to point out in her book, Black Feminist Thought, that these terms and the stereotypes attached to them work so well by meshing smoothly with intersecting oppressions of race, class, gender, and sexuality, helping to justify the social practices that characterize the matrix of domination in the United States. The dominant cultural narrative of what a drug user is and how we should treat them fits well with all of the other judgmental, anger-fueled blaming that allows the United States to put off long-overdue projects of self-improvement and healing. Systems of oppression always work with other systems of oppression. They support one another. That's the matrix. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. We can never stop people from using drugs. We can threaten them, torture them, lie about them, shame them, stigmatize them, even kill them, and it won't work. In fact, many of these treatments cause users to turn inward towards the chemicals that make us feel accepted and functional. But it's incredibly convenient for family members and friends of drug users to be able to tough love them out of their lives when we need them the most. It's also incredibly convenient for the expanding group of capitalistic corporations who continue to rake in profits from the war on drugs and drug users and from the prison industrial complex. Two words have been attached to me in my life that have done more work than any others, junkie and doctor. One slammed the door in my face in more ways than I could ever have imagined, and the other opened up more than could ever have been slammed. Both titles are heavy with stereotype and expectations. Both have been used to literally put my body in its place. Our fight to end the war on drugs is largely a fight to reconfigure our language, specifically the language we use to describe drugs and those of us who use them. We have to stop using the language of domination, the language of separation, and instead incorporate a language of love. Those of us who have had terms like junkie and doctor used to move us around and restrict or allow us into certain spaces know full well the power of language. To the addicted people and their support groups who are listening and learning, and to those of you who see that our struggles are much more connected than we tend to realize, keep it up. We can update our social norms and rewrite the script for drug use and drug users. We don't wind up in jail, institutions, or dead. In fact, we do all sorts of cool stuff with our lives. We raise kids, we get degrees, we forge relationships, we create podcasts. But we need a space to share our stories of betterment, stories of experimentation that don't end in disaster, stories of quality of life improvement and successes related to responsible drug use. We need honest discussions and informative sources for people, including kids, who are curious about drugs. And we have to do the long overdue and difficult work of rethinking shame-based policies of punishment and torture. We can do better. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm your host, Ben Boyce. Detox. All right, all right. I totally spaced and forgot to mention that this entire episode is about what Michelle Alexander called the new Jim Crow in her book by the same name. The new Jim Crow isn't just the idea that black folks are profiled by the police or that the war on drugs disproportionately affects them. I mean, that's part of it. But the real new Jim Crow has to do with the fact that once you have a felony conviction, there's a long list of things that you're not allowed to do. So shout out to Michelle Alexander. I should have included her in the body. Oh, and also, thanks to Austin. Without you, this episode wouldn't have been possible. 